The following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. You can message us at threestrands.church slash contact. Uh, what's the meaning of life? So that's the question we've been trying to answer the last few weeks in our series, The Vanity of Humanity, right? We've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes written by a person who identifies himself as the preacher or the teacher, but it's pretty obvious from the text that it's really King Solomon, but he calls himself the teacher or the preacher, and it's really a journal, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's his life journal of his experiences. He set out to do an investigative research study of the meaning of life, and now he records in Ecclesiastes his observations, his um, his takes on life. And he's really kind of writing it in a way that would make you think he's going to leave it behind to like his son or, or maybe a future generation, maybe even to us, right? And it's like, hey, I've been searching for the meaning of life for years. I've looked in all these different places and I've made all these observations and I want to record them so you can learn from my experiences. Now, isn't that something like every good parent tries to do? You kind of size up life and you want to pass on to your children kind of your experiences so that they won't have to learn some things the hard way like you did, right? And so that's kind of what the, uh, how to frame the book of Ecclesiastes. Now what's difficult about that is that Solomon also wrote the book of Proverbs. And, and those two books seem to be contradictions of each other. Because you read through the book of Proverbs and it's a, a bunch of wise sayings and, and he kind of presents wisdom as this thing to go after with all of your heart. And he says, if you'll pursue wisdom and live the right way and do all these certain things, then life will turn out well for you. But then you get to Ecclesiastes and he goes through all these things we've been covering and he kind of says like, you could do all these right things and life really still has no meaning. And they seem to be a contradiction of each other. But if you really think about it, we need that because life is a big contradiction. And you might tell your kids to, hey, be wise and make wise choices and things will go better for you in life. But you really know deep down in your heart that just because you make wise choices doesn't always mean life's going to work out the way you want it to work out. So there is a contradiction. You, you want your kids to succeed and have good paying jobs, but you know deep down that no matter how much riches they accumulate, things still might not always break their way. You want your kids to have pleasure and to be happy in life, but you know that just experiencing pleasure doesn't always mean that they're going to be happy. You know that life is riddled with these contradictions. That you can pursue wisdom and you can pursue riches and you can pursue... Um, you know, all these things that Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes, like power and pursuit of justice and knowing your place in history and having good, healthy relationships. But you know that no matter how hard you try to attain these things, there's a reality in life that it still might not work out in your favor. And so I'm glad we have the book of Ecclesiastes because if we didn't, we might be tempted to think that I just have to do the right things and then God has to make it all work out the right way for me. But we know enough about life to know it doesn't always work that way. That you can do all the right things and you could still die young. You could live the right way and some fool could get a better wife than you get. Right? 
It's just the way life is. And so Solomon kind of hits us with the reality of both sides. There's a right way to live, and you should live that way because it'll produce good results. But even living that way could mean that things are going to still feel kind of pointless and meaningless. And so we've covered a lot of these in the first few weeks from wisdom and power and riches and pleasure and all these things that Solomon has investigated into and he's recorded for us his observations. And to this point, he's kind of concluded that they're really not of much value. In fact, I shared with you every week of this series so far that there's two phrases that come up over and over again in the book. I'm going to see if anybody can help me out with these. He, he says, I'm going to search I'm going to search for meaning in this life, but he puts one limitation on it. Can anybody tell me the first phrase I'm looking for? It comes up 40 times in the Bible. Oh, we got a hand raise. All right, I like that. I see that hand. Is that what you're supposed to say? If you're the, okay. Yeah, he's only, I didn't even put that on the screen. See, I gave you the hint today. The sun is up there. So he says, I'm going to search for meaning in this life. And 40 different times he uses this phrase, under the sun. I'm searching for meaning Everywhere you can search under the sun. What does he mean by that? He really means everywhere on this planet. I'm searching for meaning, but I'm only going to investigate stuff that exists in the real world. I'm not going to look into the spiritual world, into outer space. I'm not going to look into some mystic uh, religious beliefs. I'm just going to look and examine the practical side of life. Things I can actually try and experience for myself. I'm going to look for meaning, everywhere under the sun. Then there's another phrase that comes up just about the same amount of times because as he investigates a lot of these things, he concludes that most of them are futile. Most of them don't actually contain much purpose to them, even though we chase after them. Does anybody know what the other phrase is? Have you been here for the last few weeks? Are you looking at some notes or something? Or what was that? Oh, wow. She got notes in her phone. That's next level. It'll be something extra in your stocking at Christmas, all right? Yeah, he says, uh, he concludes all these things he's looked at so far are meaningless. So he says this phrase over and over again, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And then he compares it to chasing after the wind. He says these things we're talking about, they're good things, they're not bad things, but they just are empty. They're not going to give you meaning in life. I know they might sound good. Everybody wants to be loaded with a lot of wealth. Everybody wants to be super wise and have power and influence. Everybody wants to see justice take place in the world. But those things will actually leave you feeling meaningless. Some translations say hopeless. Some translations say vanity. Not vanity like looking in the mirror, but just vanity like empty. Empty. These things are all empty, like trying to chase after the wind and grab a hold of it. How's that going to work out for you? And that's what he compares a lot of these things we've looked at so far to. And then he kind of gets to this passage we're going to look at today, and he almost says, like, in case I left anything out. I mean, we covered wisdom and power and riches and pleasure and, you know, all these different things. In case I left anything out, let me list a bunch of stuff you could chase after to find meaning in this life. And then just real quickly tell you, like, that's garbage. That doesn't work. I tried that. It leaves you empty inside. I'm not going to read you the whole passage because it's pretty long. I'd encourage you to go back and read the whole thing on your own. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and the first half of chapter 7. But let me give you the list of things he kind of knocks out. See if any of these sound like things that people go after in life to find meaning. Here's kind of where he starts. He starts with enjoying blessings from God. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? 
Shouldn't we all enjoy blessings from God? I like that one. So maybe if I just kind of sit back and enjoy the good things of life that God's given me, this is where I'll find my meaning and purpose in life. But he kind of concludes after he looks at that, there's really a tragedy connected to that. Think about it just for a second. If the meaning of life is to enjoy blessings from God, what do I do with people who die before they get to enjoy those blessings? Think about it. Don't we all in the room know somebody or have heard a story of somebody who dies before retirement age and never gets to enjoy the peace and quiet of retirement? Don't we all know a kid who grows up in a loving family and is going to school and has all kinds of activities and a vibrance to their life, but then gets cancer and dies before they get to enjoy their life? Don't we all know people who have died before they got married, before they had kids? So if the purpose of life is to be able to enjoy all these things that we call blessings from God, what do I do with the people who die before that? This, he says, is a tragedy and discounts this from being the meaning of life because I'm, I'm eliminating huge chunks of the population from ever being able to have a meaning in this life. Is that true or not true? How can we argue with that logic? Then he goes on and he says, okay, maybe having kids is the meaning of life. I've heard people say that. My purpose in this life is to have kids. And Solomon says, you could have a hundred kids. That's a lot. I'm just saying, two is it for us. You know what I mean? But he says, I've seen people that have had, a, that could have all these kids. You could have a hundred kids and still not ever feel satisfied in life. Is that true? Don't we all know people that have kids that are still grumpy poo-poo heads? I know you're allowed to say that in our church, Mace. You're allowed to say grumpy poo-poo head here, okay? But don't we all know people that have had children but are still miserable? So if having kids is the meaning of life, then how do I explain people with no kids who seem to be happy and people with, with, who have kids who still seem to be miserable? This is a problem, he says. This can't be the answer. In fact, he says, if you have kids and you're still miserable, you'd be better off to have entered this world as a stillborn than to grow up and have these kids and still be unsatisfied with life. This can't be the meaning of life. He goes on and he says, maybe living for 2,000 years is the meaning of life. It's a long time, right? Some of us are close. But he said, maybe if you could live for 2,000 years, that would be the meaning of life. You hear this one all the time. This is like a classic movie theme. If we could just find the fountain of youth. In fact, I listened to Tony Robbins on TV yesterday talking about how in the next 10 years, he says, science is going to find a way to reverse aging. Good luck. Good luck, all right? Here we go, looking for our meaning in the fountain of youth, right? He says, you could live 2,000 years but still not be content. What do you do with that problem? If the meaning of life is to live long, then how do you explain grumpy old men? Because I know people that have lived a long time and look miserable. And I know people that are seven and look thrilled. So if the purpose of life is just to live a long time, then some people are missing it even though they're achieving it. So that can't be the purpose of life. Pokes a hole in that one. Then he says, how about this one? Knowing how to act in front of other people. Some parents are like, yeah, that should be the meaning of life. Knowing how to behave and be polite and have manners in front of others. That could be the meaning of life. I know there's people who would like that. But then he kind of gives this illustration and he says, think about it for a second. Everybody on earth scraps and scraps and scraps to get meal after meal after meal. Have you ever eaten a meal and not needed another meal sometime? 
I mean, some of you think that like Thanksgiving maybe, but like every time you eat, at some point, maybe in the next day, two days, at some point, you're going to need another meal. So he says, whether you know how to be polite in front of other people or not, you're in the exact same situation. You're still going to have to scrap in this world to get the next meal. So he doesn't make any sense. What good does it do me to be polite and mannerly and think that's all that matters in life when the fool who doesn't know how to act in front of everybody else has to live the same way I live? I mean, at least my manners should get me a meal that fills me up. But no, it doesn't. I'm in no different spot than the fool who doesn't know how to act in front of other people. Then he says, how about daydreaming about nicer things? I know some of you may not think that's the meaning of life, but some of you may do that. You're always daydreaming about the next thing, the nicer things, or what's coming. Life is all about the next vacation, right? The next weekend off, the next President's Day holiday that we get off, but some of you all don't. Sorry, I don't know. I can't have anything to do with that. But it's like you're always looking for the next thing to make you feel full. I hate my job. I hate my life. But if I can just get to the beach, life is better at the beach, only to find yourself coming home from the beach. Then what? If the meaning of life is the beach, if it's the next vacation, if it's the next high, if it's the next thing you enjoy doing, always looking forward to what's next and the future enjoyment you've got coming, it's always going to ring hollow because it's never going to be enough. He says it won't bring you any value in the long run. Then he gives this one. He says, what about arguing with God? Some people love to argue with God. He says, what good will that do you? You think you're going to convince God to see things your way? You think by arguing with God, you can get him to add any more days to your life? You're going to die when he knows you're going to die. You're not going to be able to talk him out of it. Oh, Lord, I, talk, I argue with the Lord and I convince him he's just going to let me live forever. It didn't work that way, does it? It doesn't matter how godly or faithful or kind or patient you are, you're going to die. This is encouraging so far, isn't it? Some of you are like, I'm glad I came today. This is just lifting my spirit up, isn't it? Then he goes on and he said, how about using lots of words? I know some people that this seems like their meaning in life. This use, and he goes on and he says, the more words you use, really, the more worthless it is. Now, I don't know. He doesn't go into detail about what he means by using more words. But this could be the person that's always got to get the last word in. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are poking your spouse. This could be the person has to explain everybody who's wrong. They got to explain everything that's right to them. This could be the person that just won't shut up. I know you're not supposed to say, Sydney, don't say shut up, but we're not allowed to say that in my house. So, And so it's like, this could be a lot of different things, but think about it. He says, what good do any of those words do you? Come on now, spouses. Getting the last word in, has that ever made your marriage better? Have you ever explained enough stuff to somebody who doesn't understand life to get them to be like, well, now I understand what you're saying and I'll start seeing it all your way. What good do all those words really do you in the end? Nothing. They don't do you any good. Then he goes on and he says, how about trying to leave a legacy? Oh, it's a good one. I hear this one. I feel like I've said this to people. Man, try to leave a legacy behind to somebody else, right? He says, trying to leave a legacy. What good's that going to do you? Even if you succeed and are able to leave behind a legacy, you won't even be around to see it come, like happen. You won't even know if the next generation uh, takes any value or remembers what you did or what you left for them. You'll be gone. How can, that, how can the meaning of life be something you won't even be around to experience? So you fight and you toil to leave behind this great legacy, and then you're gone and you don't even get to see it. 
And on top of that, he says, you don't even know if they're going to do what you want them to do. You can't guarantee that somebody's going to remember what you want them to remember. You'll be gone. You won't be able to control them. Then he goes on, he kind of gives this long list. He kind of lumps all these together. He says, how about partying? I know some people in the room right now, this is their meaning of life. How about partying, right? You just go to parties. And he says, how about laughing? Lots of laughter. I've heard that. I've seen that on Hobby Lobby signs. Live, laugh, love, right? That's the meaning of life, right? Laugh a lot. Going to parties, laughing. He says, thinking about having a good time. And he says, being praised by fools. He kind of lumps all these four together. Going to parties, laughing, thinking about having a good time, being praised by fools. But then he says, no, those are no good. Have you ever been to the party that's so great that you're like, oh, I don't ever need to go to another party. I don't even need to celebrate New Year's Eve again. It's like that New Year's Eve party was so good. I'm filled for life. No, you always want to go to another party, right? Have you ever laughed so loud, so long, so hard? You thought, oh, well, nobody needs to tell me another joke. I'll be good the rest of my life. Laughter, it's over. I, I've reached the pinnacle. And so laughter, I don't need it anymore. H have you ever sat around and thought about having a good time and then thought like, well, now I don't ever have to think about having a good time again. It's like, no, these never satisfy in the long run. Have you ever gotten a compliment from somebody and just thought, well, I mean, now that they think that about me, I, I don't need anybody to say anything nice to me the rest of my life. No, because no matter how great the compliment is, no matter how hearty the laughter is, no matter uh, how great the party was that you were at, you're always going to want another compliment, another thing to laugh at, another party to go to. They all ring hollow. In fact, he goes on to say, instead of going to parties, you'd be better off to go to funerals. It's getting even more encouraging, isn't it? He says, you'd be better off to go to funerals. Instead of laughter, you'd be better off to cry. He says, instead of thinking about uh, good times or doing good, fun things in the future, you'd be better off to sit around and think about death. Praise the Lord. It's lifting you up, isn't it? How you feeling today? Glad you came, aren't you? He says, instead of getting praises and compliments from a fool, you'd be better to get criticized by somebody wise. Why? Why, Solomon? Why would I be better to go to funerals, sit around, think about death, uh, have a wise person criticize me? Why would I be? Because he says, at least these things, crying, at least they make you stop and think about what life's really all about. You never do that at a party or when you're laughing or when somebody's complimenting you for how great you are. But he says, hey, at least when you're in tears or you're sitting at a funeral or you're thinking about your own mortality, you stop and think about what's this life really matter? Like, what's it all about? Is that true or not? You ever find yourself at a funeral? Don't we all think that at a funeral? Like, man, life is short. What's it all about? So he says, at least you'd be better off to do those things because at least there's the value of making you stop and think about what really matters. And then he says, how about longing for the good old days? That sounds like a good, I know a lot of people that do that, longing for the good old days. He says, that's, wor that's worthless, it's foolishness, he calls it. Longing for the good old days, it's handicapping your present. You can't ever enjoy the present because you're always comparing it to something in the past. And I have this same struggle. I'm always thinking like, man, my church experience growing up was so awesome. And I'm always trying to recapture that experience. Like it's in the way of me enjoying the present. How many people in our life do we know like that? How many of us in the room are like that? You're sitting around, you're like, if I could just go back to before the divorce, life was so much better. If I could just go back to before that loved one died, everything seemed to have meaning then. Everything in the present gets compared to the good old days. 
And, and you kind of uh, 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 personify the good old days and make them into this glorious thing that now can never be attained in life. And so you just live your life miserable, always thinking about what used to be. Or back when you had the lung capacity to walk up the stairs at your house without getting winded, right? Or like back when you had the athletic ability to like play a school sport. And you're looking at, man, if I could just go back and play football again, you know, reliving the glory days. He says, that's foolishness, all these things. You know what he says in the end about all of these things? Meaningless. Meaningless. Like trying to chase after the wind and grab onto it. It's impossible. Is he right or wrong? I'm just asking you to be intellectually honest today. To just look at these things and the holes he pokes in them and just say, are any of these actually what give my life purpose and meaning? Or are they all meaningless, like he says. Then, for the first time in his book, for the first time in his journal, he's going to reveal a conclusion. He's going to hint at it today. We're going to expand it the last two weeks of the series. I hope you'll come back. But he's going to hint at it today. Let me read it for you. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 27. This is what he says. This is my conclusion, says the teacher. I discovered, after the, I discovered this after looking at the matter from every possible angle. He's done his investigation. Though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. So, so far, all these things we've talked about for three weeks, four weeks, three and a half weeks, whatever. All these things he's dug into, he has found no meaning and purpose to life in any of them yet. Okay? And so he says, I've searched repeatedly. I've looked everywhere. I've done my research. And so far, I have not found what I'm looking for. He's going to go on to say, I can't even find a person. In, I can't hardly even find a person in the world who is virtuous, who does what God has designed them to do. Back in verse 20, he says it this way. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Okay, he's going to make a conclusion. I'm going to read it to you in just a second. He's going to make a conclusion where he looks around. He says, I know none of these things I've looked at so far hold any meaning in life, but I can tell that God has designed us to live for purpose. I can tell he's designed us to live for meaning but I've looked around and I can't find anyone that does what God says all the time. All of us are no good. We all sin. And then here's his conclusion. Look at what he says in verse 29. But I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own devices. Or some translations say their own downward path or spiral. What's he saying? God created us to live a certain way that would, find, that would help us find meaning, but every single one of us has instead chosen a path that at best leads us miserable and at worst leads us to destruction. We've all chosen our own downward spiral devices path. We've all said like God's way, nah, I'll go after riches. God's way, no, I'll go after pleasure. I'll go after um, wisdom. I'll go after making a mark on history. I'll go after pursuit of justice. I'll go after, we've all decided, eh, I'll try my own thing first. This is his first conclusion, that all of us are like that. What's he really saying? This is what he's really saying, okay? After seven chapters, seven, seven and a half chapters of his letter, of his journal, he's really saying this to us. Life is actually a test, 
and we all fail. You're still encouraged, aren't you? Still encouraged, aren't you? We all fail the test. Do you get what he's saying? We've all, because as I'm reading through this list of things you could pursue to find meaning in your life, and as we teach through the ones he really dug into detail, detail in, in the first few weeks of this series, everyone, if they're being honest, had to sit here and think to themselves, I do put a lot of value on that. Some of those things we read, you had to be like, I do put a lot of value on my kids. I do put a lot of value on making money. I do find, place a lot of value in my head at least on having a lot of education and being wise. This is what he's pointing out. God didn't make us for those things to be our meaning in this world. But we've all chosen those. We've all failed the test. There's a test and life is it. And we've all failed it. But stay with me. There was this one guy that didn't fail the test. And where we fail, Jesus gets all A's. Where we choose our own devices and our own path and reject all the virtue God has for us, Jesus stayed the course and decided that no matter how he felt and no matter what life threw at him, that he would do whatever God told him to do and trust that God's plan was better than any device the world could throw at him. And don't get me wrong, along the way he cried, and he felt pain, and he was abandoned, and felt loneliness, and was stabbed in the back by friends. He experienced all those things, but when they came up, he didn't run to the bar. And he didn't double down on his career. And he didn't stockpile a bunch of money. He wasn't so concerned about righting every wrong and making justice his priority in the world. Instead, he just stayed the course and obeyed God's plan along the way, trusting that it had to be better, not because he felt it, but because God said it. And so you see Jesus all throughout his life at the age of 12, he gets lost, separated from his parents, and they come find him. And what does he say? He says, I had to be about my father's business. And then he goes and he gets baptized. And John the Baptist says, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And what's Jesus' response? No, I have to do this to obey the Father's wishes. And then you find him the night before his execution in the garden praying, saying, God, take this burden away from me. But if it's what you want, I'll do it no matter what. You see it? You see what he did? Everywhere we fail the test when we're facing pain, when, when, when people abandon us, when we get lost in this life, when people question why we're even doing what we're doing, he doesn't run to his own devices. Instead, he continues to trust that God's plan is better than anything else the world could throw at him. Look at what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 about us, verse 7. He says, Indeed, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, this is one thing I know for sure, he's going to say, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. You know what he's saying? None of us has the ability to forestall our own death. And when that day comes and you die, none of the devices you ran to, 
None of the downward spiral or path you chose over God's plan, none of it will fill your heart with meaning. Nobody will stand in front of God and God be like, tell me about your life. Be like, well, God, I don't know. I know what you said, but really life was so awesome because I was rich. Or I was so awesome because I experienced all the pleasure I could experience. Nobody's going to do that. He said, one thing I know for sure, you can't forestall your death. It's coming. And when it comes, none of the wicked things we chose over God's virtue is going to help us in that day. None of it's going to rescue us. But Jesus lived differently than us. He did it the opposite. He's exposing what he's going to teach us the next two weeks, which is this. He's saying, I've looked for meaning on this planet. Everywhere I can look under the sun, and I have found none. But what I've realized is that the reason I can't find any is because there is no meaning under the sun. Real meaning is only found above the sun. He's going to dig deeper into it in the next couple weeks. <clears throat> but that's really what he's trying to teach us. How do we find meaning in this life? Not by chasing after the wind, but by running as hard as we can after Jesus. Do you see where he's going? Jesus came and did all the things I couldn't do and now offers to me if I will run after him instead of all these other things that feel like the right thing to do, I will find meaning. He will fill me where everything else has left me empty. And please hear what Solomon's teaching in his journal here. He's not saying that any of these things are wrong. There's nothing wrong with wisdom or power and influence. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with parties or laughter. None of this stuff is evil. It's just not enough is what he's trying to tell us. And if you could stop for a second and be intellectually honest with yourself, you'd have to agree with all the points he made. And our problems all start when we turn good things into God things. We try to find meaning in something the Creator gave us, not to be our meaning, but to just be a blessing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. See, when we live for Jesus... Our pursuits, our work, our effort, our pleasures, they all find meaning, not in the acts or the accumulation of anything on our own, but they all find meaning because we're doing them all for Him. And what He promises is eternal reward for that stuff that always satisfies and fills. We'll get rewarded for eternity. Our lives will be full of meaning when we trust that Jesus' resurrection is truer than any futility the cursed world could throw at me. I, I brought this quarter with me today because it's the biggest coin. I don't have any 50 cent piece or dollars at home. I brought a quarter with me. But I, I would guess that there's nobody in the room who would disagree with me 
that I have one coin in my hand. This is just one quarter. But I also believe there's hardly nobody in the room that would disagree that there's two sides to this quarter. Is that right? Somehow, this quarter is one coin and two sides at the same time. Is it not? That is what being a Christian is like. And what I fear in McCreary County and all over our world is that people have bought into one side of the quarter but ignored the other side of the quarter. So let's get honest about what the Bible says about being a Christian for just a second. There's this side of the quarter over here, this side that says you need salvation. Anybody ever heard that word in churches before? Salvation. You need to be saved, all right? It's in there, legit. It's just one side, though. You need to be saved. I need to recognize that I'm messed up, like Solomon said. None of us do what's right. We all choose sin. We all choose a different path than God's laid out for us. And so I can't save myself. I need to cry out to God to save me. Salvation. That's part of it. But there's this other side of the quarter. And this side of the quarter is also in the Bible. This side of the quarter is called surrender. I have to give up everything I am and believe everything Jesus tells me and believe everything he did for me and believe everything he wants me to do. There is no such thing as salvation without surrender. And I don't care what preacher or what Sunday school teacher or what parent told you to pray some magic prayer and you'd get into heaven someday. There's no such thing in the Bible as salvation without surrender. And there's no such thing in the Bible as surrender that lasts without salvation. They're the same coin. And so I cry out to God, save me. I believe you died and rose for me because I couldn't do it on my own. Save me. And in exchange, I will give you everything I am. And in that moment, Jesus sends his spirit to invade your life and transform you into a brand new person. And now he gives you the ability to walk out a new life for Christ. You'll never be perfect, but I'll be headed in the right direction. Not because I'm so great, not because my effort is so great, not because I'm so strong, because I'm so saved and I'm so surrendered. And I'm so scared that so many people have been inoculated against the gospel. They've been given just enough of the gospel to convince them they're going to heaven, but never convince them that they need to give God their life. Or they've been so convinced that they need to do a bunch of good things, but have never decided Jesus is the only one that can save them. They've only believed one side of the coin. And so if you're here today, and you've prayed some prayer, the sinner's prayer is what they call it in church, right? The sinner's prayer. But you've never told Jesus you'll follow him with your whole heart. You're not a Christian. I just got news for you. And if you're over here, and you've done a bunch of good things, and you've been in church, and you've read your Bible, and you're kind to your neighbors, and you help old ladies across the street, you're living a life that looks surrendered to the Lord, but you've never cried out to the Lord and said, I can't save myself. Will you save me? You're not a Christian either. It's both and, not either or. It happens in one moment. I get it. Salvation is by grace from God through faith. I get it. It's not about what you can do. 
It's not about what you say. There's no magic prayer. The thief on the cross just said, remember me today. Somehow he made it to paradise. It's not about the words you say. Do you know even the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross? You know, if you go around McCreary County, you'd be hard-pressed to find a person that doesn't say they believe in Jesus. And what they mean by that is they believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and he's the son of God. Every single demon believes that same thing. You think the demons are stupid? You think Satan wasn't there? You think he didn't know who Jesus was when he was in heaven? You think he didn't see Jesus die and doesn't know he's alive again? But the one thing they don't believe that you have to believe to become a Christian is that Jesus is their boss that he's the Lord, that if he says it, I'll buy it, whether I feel it or not. I don't want to die on the cross. It's going to hurt. But if it's what you want, God, I'll do it. I don't really need to be baptized because I'm perfect. I don't even need to be saved. But if God wants me to get baptized, I'm getting baptized, he said. Stick with my parents. I can't stick with my parents. i got to be about the Lord's work, Jesus said. His whole life, from every encounter we've got of him from 12 years old up, was like, no matter what the world throws at me, I'm choosing to follow what God tells me is best. Is that you? Look at what Romans 6, verse 3 says. When we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, baptism doesn't wash your sins away. It doesn't really, that water doesn't even really clean you. There's no soap in it or anything like that. But when we were joined with Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live brand new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life just like he was. Baptism is just a picture of what's going on in my heart. That I'm willing to die and surrender my life to Jesus. And in exchange, he will raise me to brand new life. That's Christianity. And so whether you've prayed a prayer, been baptized, signed a church membership card somewhere, had somebody told you you're getting into heaven because you're a good person, whatever you've heard in the past, please believe the Bible today instead. That unless you declare that Jesus is your Lord and confess that he's been raised from the dead to save you, you cannot be saved. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 10. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Meaning, purpose, fulfillment, giving me a life that matters, it's all available if I'm willing to die to myself, just like Jesus did. And if I'm willing to ask him, to raise me to new life because he conquered death. Then in that moment, in that moment, I find meaning. All the meaning I could ever desire. All the meaning I could ever want in life. And nobody can steal it away from me. Not even death can take it from me because I will get fulfillment and reward throughout all of eternity. Not because of my effort, but because of God's grace you get the chance today to join us in baptism. Maybe you came today to watch somebody else get baptized. Maybe you came today because somebody else made you come. Maybe you came today because you always come here. 
Maybe you came today believing, I'm a Christian. Maybe you came today believing, I couldn't care less if I'm a Christian. But what my prayer is for you today is that God's word will touch your heart. And you won't be afraid of what everybody else thinks of you. You won't be afraid of what the world throws at you. You won't choose your own devices any longer, but instead you will beg God to save you and you will volunteer to surrender yourself to him. And in that moment, you will be a Christian. If that's you, I want to encourage you to get up out of your seat when the band starts playing, walk to the side, come down here, and show everybody else that's what you've decided by getting baptized like Jesus did. You say, I can't do that. I'll be afraid. Don't be afraid. The rewards are eternal. You say, I can't do that. I didn't bring a towel. We've got extra towels for you. You say, I can't get baptized today. I didn't bring a change of clothes. We've got extra clothes for you. We've eliminated every obstacle in the room that would keep you from following Jesus with your whole heart and being rescued for eternity. The only thing standing in the way of you becoming a real Christian today and being secured in your faith for eternity is your ability to muster the courage to step out of your seat and declare it with faith. And I want to challenge you to do it today. Everybody in the room is welcome to be baptized. We won't get out of the water until you're ready to be done. I promise. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the people in this room. I know that there are people here right now who are terrified, terrified to get up out of their seat and demonstrate their faith in, in, their faith in front of a crowd of strangers or maybe even a crowd of relatives or friends they know. But God, would you shower our room right now with courage? Would you help our unbelief? God, we, we want to see your blessing. We want to have hearts that are full of meaning. And so God, I'm begging you to not let somebody in this room rest until they respond to what you're teaching us through your word, till they respond to the love you're showering down on us. God, I pray that you would just give courage to the people in this room who need it to join us in baptism and declare out loud to everyone watching, from this day forward, I'm with Jesus. No turning back, no abandoning him, no trusting my own devices, but just trusting what he says is true. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What an amazing challenge from God's word for all of us. We hope you start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. Be sure to subscribe to the 3SC podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.